I do want to start by just bringing you greetings from Jim Richards and Nathan Lorick, who are executive directors at the SBTC, and the other 2,681 churches across the Lone Star State who are your sister churches in theology and practice and missiology. What they're doing is they're pulling their relationships and their resources together with you through what's called the cooperative program so that we can reach Texas and impact the whole world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, on this Sunday, this is Cooperative Program Sunday. That's so like Southern Baptist, right? To name a Sunday after the cooperative program. Southern Baptist Cooperative Program Sunday. So 47,000 churches across the United States today are celebrating and, uh, and giving credence to the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention. The best way I know how to do this is to make it real and put some real uh, like, like first world numbers on it. So here's what this is. When you give through uh, your local church, you give your tithes and offerings through the offering boxes here at Heights Baptist Church, Heights Baptist Church takes a percentage of that and passes it on through the state convention, through the National Southern Baptist Convention, and here's what happens. We retain 45% at the state convention. That's how we develop our ministries and operate our ministries inside the boundaries of Texas. And we take 55% of that, the SBTC does, and passes it on to national causes so that you can say, you guys right here, when you give through your local church this morning, you are fully funding the salaries of 3,700 missionaries all over the world. You're doing that. You are uh, financially supporting 700 church plants across the continent of North America every single year. You are scholarshiping 20 thousand seminary students in six different Southern Baptist seminaries across the United States, and they are the leaders of the church today and tomorrow. You are coming to the relief and the aid of churches all across Texas and the United States and the whole world who are enduring disasters and crises of various kind. You guys had that firsthand here at Hurricane Harvey just a few short years ago when Southern Baptist disaster relief came to your aid. In fact, you have a lot of volunteers at Heights Baptist Church who give their time and their energy to pour into this disaster relief effort. You guys, you're training and resourcing and encouraging and equipping thousands of lay leaders and pastors and everything from like nursery work to senior adult work and from preaching and pastoral ministry all the way to children's ministry and security. You're doing all of this because you faithfully give through your local church and your local church at Heights Baptist faithfully and sacrificially gives through the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention. So on behalf of 2,681 sister churches in Texas, 47,000 across the United States, 3,700 missionaries, 700 church planters, and thousands and thousands of volunteers across Texas, thank you. Thank you for being a faithful and sacrificial giver through the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention. And if that sounded like a short commercial break, it was. Now, let's get to 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. I'm honored to continue your series today, uh, A Beautiful Mess, through 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me pause for just a minute and say, just in case you don't know this, how blessed you guys are to call this man your pastor. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Lee Peoples has been a great friend of mine for three or four years, and I enjoyed spending the day with him and Sandra yesterday. Thank you for lending Sandra to us as well. Sandra is our state convention's uh, rep, our consultant for special needs ministry across the state. So they are very involved, very invested in Southern Baptist life and serving Southern Baptist churches across the state of Texas. Thank you for allowing me to have the friendship with the Peoples, and I hope that you never forget how blessed you are to have this man as your pastor. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. What we're looking at in the text today, keeping in mind the, the whole picture of the beautiful mess that is the church of the living God in this age, what we're looking at today is the paradox of heaven's power. The paradox of heaven's power. Now, you know what a paradox is. A paradox is a statement that is contextually true, but on the surface, it seems illogical. You know what a paradox is. Let's, uh, let's start with a little call and response this morning to get you uh, talking back to me, okay? So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll start a paradoxical statement, and you finish it out loud. Sound like fun? little exercise this morning. Here we go. I promise you know these. Everybody else around you knows these, so don't hesitate to just say it out loud. All right, fill in the blank. Here it is. Less is more. You did, see, isn't that a paradoxical statement? How is less more? Well, it makes sense in its context, but on the surface, it seems illogical. Here's another one. You have to spend money to make money, or some of you said save money, and you're the more conservative of the ones in here. Yes? Yeah. Either way, that, that, that paradoxical truth is precipitated on the fact that you have money, so I really don't have to worry about it at all, right? But you have to spend money in order to save or make money. Here's one more for you. This is the beginning of the, how many times have you said that in the last year, right? Because 2020 was like the longest 10 years of my life. This is the beginning of the end, and so on and so forth. All these statements are true, or they can be true in their context, but on the surface, they seem illogical. They seem like they don't make sense. And you're going to see several paradoxical statements in our text this morning, and Paul uses this as a literary device to convey something very important. And that thing he's trying to convey is the power of heaven that's wrapped up in the cross of Christ. Look with me before we actually get to the text, just kind of a, a spot check here, verse 20. Verse 20, you see, hasn't God made the wisdom of this world foolish? Verse 25, that was verse 20. Verse 25, God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Verse 27, God's chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and God's chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And then verse 28, God has brought to nothing what is viewed as something. And I want you to know that even the main idea of this text today, the whole big picture here, even the main idea itself is paradoxical in nature, that a crucified Savior would display the power of God. That a crucified Savior would elevate and put on display the power of God. Now, in the interest of time, we're going to get to the whole text throughout the sermon, but I just want to read to begin the bookend. So we're going to start by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, and then chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. So if you're able, would you stand with me now to honor the reading of God's Word? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, and chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. Hear the Word of the Lord. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. 
For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Chapter 2, verse 4. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Father, we entrust this time to you, asking, Lord, that you would give us the great honor and the great privilege today of meeting with you. Lord, we're here for this reason. Nothing else will satisfy. We are here to hear a word from the living God. So, God, fill us up. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you. Now, you can tell from the bookends, I mean, you, you have bookends on your shelf to highlight something important in the middle, and you can tell from the bookends of our text, chapter 1, verses 18, 19, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, that what's in view here, the whole point of what's in the middle, what's being put on display in our text today, is the power of God. The power of God is what's in view. Heaven's power is on display. And I want to show you from our text this morning three particular paradoxes that portray the power of heaven. I just came up with that like off the fly. Adrian Rogers would have been so proud of me. Do you hear all those P's? I was really proud of that. Second service is not going to get that. That was just for you. So these are three paradoxical statements that highlight the power of heaven. And the first is this. Heaven's power is on display in the foolishness of the message. Heaven's power is on display in the foolishness of the message. Now, we already read verses 18 and 19, so put your eyes on verse 20. Verse 20 says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. Verse 22, for the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Think with me how infinitely wise is the God of the ages that the power of the gospel would be hung on a crucified Savior. I mean, just imagine with me how foolish it is to human wisdom that, that forgiveness and life would come to us through one who's been condemned and crucified. How paradoxical, how foolish. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 mentions the word of the cross. What we're looking at here is the message of the gospel. The word, the logos of the cross, the message of the gospel. Here's the message of the cross. Here's the word of the cross. Jesus Christ, God's heaven-sent Savior, died on the cross of Calvary to bridge the gap between your sinfulness and God's holiness. There on the cross of Calvary, God the Father punished God the Son for your sin and for my sin. Jesus died on the cross of Calvary for your sin. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He rose from the dead on the third day. He is coming again to set right the great wrongs of human sin, death, and hell. And this is the message of the cross. 
This is the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as you're looking back at verse 18, it says that this message, this word of the cross is foolishness to a certain group of people. To whom is the message of the cross foolishness? Well, verse 18 says, to those who are perishing. This is a passive participle for you English majors in here. Passive meaning the verb tense that that says that this action is being done to us. You and I are not doing this action. The action is being done to us. Participial means it's ongoing. Participles end in ing, like I am preaching, I will continue preaching for the next three hours preaching, like ing, 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 you know, like on and on and on. And so what you're looking at is a passive participle. That means that, that the action's being done to us and it's continually being done to us. Literally what the text is saying here in verse 18 is that we, you and I, are being killed. We are being perished. We're recipients of the perishing action. What is it that's killing us? Our sin. Now, this doesn't take a a whole lot of intelligence to wrap your head around. Think about it this way. The only thing required to die is to live. Doesn't that make sense? True or false? I mean, as far as I know, even in the beautiful city of Alvin, USA, the mortality rate among the American population is still lurking right around 100%. True? Everybody's going to die. And I know you brought in this guest speaker and you hope to have a good, solid, pick-me-up, encouraging message, and here he is saying, everybody's going to die. The only requirement to die is to live. Make sense? So dying is a passive action. If you do nothing, you will die. The same thing it is, that's physical, but the same thing is true of your spiritual death. Listen to me, you and I, in our natural state, apart from the message of the cross, apart from Christ, everyone who has ever lived is naturally, passively, spiritually dying. Every single one of us, our sin is actively, continually killing us. It's pulling us further and further away from God's holiness. My sin accumulates before God. And God is holy and just and righteous and pure. And without the cross of Christ that bridges the gap between my sinfulness and God's holiness, apart from Jesus, the natural passive course of every human being is spiritual death. And so the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Our sin kills us. Our sin condemns us. Our sin perishes us. And if that sounds like foolishness to you this morning, then verse 18 would say that you are the one who is perishing in your sin. The word of the cross is foolishness only to those who are perishing. But the word of the cross also in verse 18, it says, is power. The power of God to those who are being saved. Same message, Same cross, same Jesus. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to those of us who are being saved. And you would say, Tony, I really want to believe this. I mean, it it sounds like one of those paradoxical statements we said earlier that it's probably true in its context, but it just doesn't make any logical sense to me right now. That, that my eternal salvation would hang on a condemned and crucified Savior. And the Apostle Paul would agree with you that it is paradoxical. That's the whole point of this first section, verses 18 through 25, that that there's no way you'll ever, apart from Christ, in your human wisdom, there's no way you or I would ever be able to wrap our heads around the truth of heaven's power. 
Only in Christ can this be accomplished. So when you embrace the foolishness of the message, you're filled with the wisdom of God. You see that in verses 24 and 25. And at that very moment, the paradox of the death of Christ becomes the power of your new life in him. You and I will never wrap our heads around God's power. God's power is not to be figured out, verses 19 through 23. God's power is to be embraced in Christ Jesus. All that to say in this first point, that you will wrap your head around heaven's power when you wrap your life around heaven's Savior, not before then. How beautifully paradoxical this statement is, the power of God hanging on a crucified Savior. Secondly, this morning from verses 26 through 31, you see this, heaven's power is on display in the insignificance of the called. Heaven's power is on display in the insignificance of the called. We'll take verses 26 through 31, one verse at a time. Look at verse 26. Verse 26, he says, brothers and sisters, so he's talking to those who are saved, those who are in Christ. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. What are you talking about Calling. Calling is what happened when God called you to salvation through repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. If you're saved, it's because God has called you to himself by the medium of turning away from your sin and placing your faith in the crucified and resurrected Savior. So you're called to God in Christ. And just, I know that that word calling has mixed emotions attached to it for some, but just think of it this way. How beautiful and how encouraging it is this morning, right now, whether you're here on campus or joining us via live stream, how beautifully encouraging it is that the God of the ages who created you in his image and after his likeness and has a beautiful plan and purpose for your life, that this God right now would call your name and cut through all of the noise surrounding your life and say, Tony, follow me. Mariah, follow me. Paul, follow me. Kimberly, follow me. David, follow me. Michelle, follow me. That the God of the ages would cut through all the noise of your life and invite you into a relationship with him if you'll turn away from your sin and place your faith in the crucified and resurrected Savior. Look at verse 26 again. 26, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. That is among the saved. Not many of you were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. God doesn't call us because we're noble. Now, sure, some with nobility are called to salvation in Christ, but they're not called because of their nobility. They're called in spite of their nobility. Verse 27, verse 27 says, instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God's chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God does not call us because we're strong. Now, surely some who are strong are called to God through faith in Jesus Christ. But they're called not because of their strength, rather in spite of it. Now, look down at verse 28. Verse 28 says, God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. God does not call us because we're popular. Now, surely... Some who have been called to God in Christ are popular, but they were not called because of their popularity, rather in spite of it. And why? Why would God do this? Why would God be so adamant to strip us away from all of the things that we would say are significant about our lives? If we're called in Christ, why would he be so adamant about stripping away our significance? Because you and I think differently 
That's why we're not God. Because you and I see somebody in nobility or someone in a position of power and we would say, oh God, if you would only bring this person to repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ, just think of how he could leverage his influence for the sake of the gospel. That's how you and I think. And you and I think we, we see somebody in the entertainment industry who is so very popular and has so many fans and followers, and we would say, God, if you would only bring this person to repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ, oh, you could do so much through that person's witness. God, this person is strong, and this person is really smart, and if you would just bring them to faith in Christ, then they could leverage their relational influence through what they write and how they speak, and so many could come to faith in Jesus Christ, and that's how you and I think. But God says, if you're going to come to him through repentance from sin and faith in the crucified and resurrected Savior, if you're going to be saved, then he has to strip away all of those things that you would say are significant about your life. And you have to be humiliated before the cross of Christ if you're to embrace heaven's power. The power of the gospel elevates the weak and relegates the strong. And if you watched the movies uh, Fast and Furious, right, the Fast and Furious movies. I'm not like advocating that you should watch the Fast and Furious movies. I'm just asking if anybody else in here is a sinner like I am and maybe possibly has seen it. Uh, Fast and Furious 7. Man, they like, they have three of, they casted three of what I would say probably the most manly men in the entertainment industry are in Fast and Furious 7 and the rest of you sinners like me know it. Vin Diesel, Jason Statham, Dwayne Johnson. Talk about a trio, right, of strength and power. And they're all like flexing and fighting and facing off in Fast and Furious 7. Three of the most popular, most strong, most noteworthy men in the entertainment industry. And you and I, when we watch the movie, like all we see is the screenplay, and I get lost in it. But you and I don't get the the opportunity to see how all of those actors' individual personalities contributed to the actual screenplay that you're seeing. And so I was reading this week, and I saw an article uh, from the Wall Street Journal that was talking about how these three men, I mean, three of the arguably the manliest men on the face of the planet right now, how they were, uh, they actually hired people because of their insecurities, they like hired people to count the number of punches that they took on the screen and the number of kicks. And when one of them was thrown through a wall, the other one had to be thrown through a wall. So they didn't appear weak on screen. Listen to this. I knew you wouldn't believe me. So here's a quote from the Wall Street Journal. According to producers and crew members on the films, Mr. Statham, 51 years old, negotiated an agreement with the studio that limits how badly he can be beaten up on screen. Mr. Diesel, 52, has his younger sister, that's manly, a producer on the films, police the number of punches he takes. And Mr. Johnson, The Rock, 47, enlists producers, editors, and fight coordinators to help make sure that he always gives as good as he gets. Isn't that nuts? I mean, like, I wouldn't, if you've seen these guys, I wouldn't pick a fight with them on the street. I don't really care how their movie portrays them at all, right? I mean, they are crazy strong and notable. I'd never pick a fight with them, regardless of what uh, the screenplay says. But it's just, as it turns out, even the most popular, even the strongest, and even the most noteworthy among us, the human ego is still a very delicate thing, isn't it? And here's where the cross of Christ comes in. That we have to put our pride to death with Christ if we're to embrace heaven's power. 
We either embrace the humiliation of sin and be made strong in Christ, or we claim our own strength and we be brought to nothing in Christ. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what's viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one will boast in His presence. Now, some of you, even in this room today, may be joining us online. Your entire plan for getting into heaven when you die, you've embraced the fact that eventually you're going to die. But your entire plan is that somehow you might have impressed God. God, my family has gone to church my whole life. God, I sing the songs. I give the money. I sit in the chairs. God, I'm there week in. I'm there week out. God, overall, I'm a a good person. Let me tell you something this morning that is going to free you from all of those chains. God's love for you is not performance-based. By that I mean God does not love you because of who you are or what you can produce for Him. God loves you because of who He is, and He's displayed it through all that He has done for you in the person of Jesus Christ, and there is great freedom in that. No one, no one, no one will boast in God's presence. When you stand before God, you will have Christ or you will have nothing. Heaven's power is on display in the insignificance of the called. Thirdly and finally this morning, I told you there were three things you've been counting. You can breathe deep now. Here's number three. Heaven's power is on display in the ineloquence of the messenger. Heaven's power is on display in the ineloquence of the messenger. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, that is the gospel, the mystery of the God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith, may not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now, don't get the wrong idea here. Paul was a brilliant man. Paul was an intelligent man. Paul was actually a pretty popular man. And if you read what he writes and the way he writes and how he's such a sports fan, you get the idea that Paul was probably a strong man. Paul was brilliant, popular, strong You read this and you see that he has a tight grasp. If you read through his New Testament letters, he has a really tight grasp on language and on rhetoric and on culture and on persuasion. But when he came to Corinth, he divorced himself from all of those things, all flattery of speech, all cleverness of human wisdom and rhetoric so that he could highlight the simple and powerful message of the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul believed, Paul witnessed, and Paul demonstrated, listen to this, That the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to win its own hearing. This message, the word of the cross, the core message of Heights Baptist Church, Alvin, Texas, and all of our sister churches that cooperate through the cooperative program, building their relationships and resources toward Great Commission advance across the world, this core message has the power to win its own hearing. How beautifully paradoxical this is. 
that in every generation, the power of the gospel is magnified by the simplicity of its message. You know, marketing firms have capitalized on this. They've known this for decades, especially in the West and the American West. Marketing firms get this, how they can craft a short, simple statement that embodies the fullness of their product or their service in such a way that it can communicate the whole message in a very short phrase. And we started the sermon uh, with some call and response. So let's end with some call and response. It'll be good. I'll start a phrase. This is a common, popular, short phrase that you all know that advertises a product, none of which are subsidizing this sermon, by the way, but uh, advertises a product or a service, and you'll know what they are. You ready? I'll start it. You finish it. Like a good neighbor. I was really hoping you would sing that instead of say it. I put myself out on the line here, right? Good. Melts in your mouth. Anybody know what that's for? M&M's. Melts in your mouth, not in your hands. M&M's, good. The few, the proud. Red Bull gives you. (laughs) Y'all are a little slow at 9 o'clock. That's good. Snap, crackle. Why do you know all these things? Because you watch way too much TV, first of all. That's first. But secondly, it's because these institutions or these businesses have wrapped their entire message around a few short, simple words that, listen to this, embody the reason for their existence. And these few short, simple words that embody the reason for the existence of the church of Jesus Christ in every generation are simply this. Jesus the Christ died for your sin. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He rose from the dead. He's coming again. Anyone, anywhere, across the geographic spectrum who would turn away from their sin and place their faith in this crucified, resurrected Savior, Jesus. They'll be forgiven from sin, cleansed, and made fit for an eternal home in heaven. This is the word of the cross that highlights the power of heaven. As Christians, when we're considering sharing this gospel, you know, pastors, Lee and I talked about this yesterday some, We're always encouraging our people to share the message of hope, to share the word of the cross, to share the gospel. And most church members are really good at at highlighting the good things going on in their church and inviting people to church. Maybe you're here this morning because someone, a church member at Heights, invited you to church. Thank God for you. We're so glad that you're here. And I would say on their behalf, you're welcome every Sunday, all the time, to come and walk shoulder to shoulder with a bunch of real people who all have real problems and are just learning how to walk more closely with the Lord Jesus Christ together. You're welcome at Heights Baptist Church. But we want our people to share the message of the gospel, and sometimes we get hung up. Sometimes we get paused in sharing the gospel because we're we're concerned that our presentation may not be compelling enough. Or we're afraid that they might ask a question to which we won't have an answer. Or we're, we're afraid that we'll leave out some important component of the message. Or we're afraid that all the noise of the moment might drown out the, the beauty or the power of the song of salvation. But here's what the great apostle is saying for us as we come to a close. The apostle Paul is saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to win its own hearing. And that means it doesn't need to be polished. It just needs to be presented. It doesn't even need a dynamic messenger, just a faithful one. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, 
but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. As we come into a moment of response, you know, the Bible tells us we're to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Now, I'd like to talk to two groups of people. The first group of people is what verse 18 would have called the foolish, and I know that's offensive. But the Word of God says it's, it's only foolishness if you refuse to believe in this simple word of the cross. Has there been a moment in your life, you're here on campus, you've tuned in online, has there been a moment in your life when you can point back to and say, that's the day that I decided to give my life to Jesus Christ, and I've never been the same. Has there been a moment in your life where you've decided to turn away from the sinfulness that identifies you and that straps you and instead to hide your life inside the person of Jesus Christ and say, this is who I am. I'm going to turn away from sin, place my faith in Jesus. I can tell you that if you don't have that moment, if there's not been a time in your life when you've trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you are being perished by your own sin. It is the natural, passive course of everyone who has not embraced the message of the cross. This message of the cross is not complicated, but it is urgent. And right now, in this moment, God has come near to you. Even if you're at home on the couch or here in a chair, God has come near, and He's cut through all the noise of your life. You can feel it right now. And he's called you by name and he said, follow me. This is your time. Others of you, you've, you're, you've been a Christian for a long time, probably a, probably a member of Heights Baptist Church. But you've allowed fear and trembling and all these other worries of the Western world to strap you from sharing the simple, pure, unadulterated message of the word of the cross. And you need to repent from that this morning. You need to lay it on the altar this morning before you leave and renew your commitment to sharing the simple truth that Jesus died for the sins of your family members, your friends, and your co-workers, that he was buried in a borrowed tomb, he rose from the dead on the third day, and if they would turn away from sin and place their faith in this Jesus, they'll be saved. So either you need to commit your life to Christ for the first time today, or maybe you need to commit yourself as already a Christian to sharing more faithfully, more regularly, more compellingly, the simple, pure word of the cross. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. No one looks. I want to thank you for watching today's message. Right now, I want to encourage you to do something. You know, when we hear the word of God, the Bible calls us to make a decision. And really, that comes from Jesus. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus is saying, come and follow me. If you think about all the decisions that you've had to make in your life, some were small decisions, some were big decisions, some were not really important, and some were very important. But the decision of what you're going to do with Jesus Christ in your life is the most important decision that you're ever going to make. See, really, there's only two options. You can walk with Jesus, or you could walk away from Jesus. And I want to encourage you right now to walk with Jesus. And the way that you have a relationship with Jesus is you place your faith in Him, you place your trust in Him. And what you're doing by placing your faith and trust in Jesus is you're saying, Jesus, I, I know I have sin. I know I have sin in my life that separates me from God, and I'm going to trust in You. I'm going to trust that You can bring me to God. 
See, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 and verse 21 that Jesus knew no sin, but He was made to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And what that means is this, that when Jesus died on the cross, God put all our sin on Him. And that when you trust by faith in Jesus, He gets your sin and you get His righteousness. It's called the great exchange. You give Him your sin and He gives you His righteousness. That means you're forgiven. You're forgiven of all the sins that you've ever done and that you're forgiven of all the sins you ever will do. And the Bible says that when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, that God forgives you of your sin and He forgives you of, of the power of sin in your life right now, that when you die, that God will take you to heaven to be with Him for all of eternity. And so if you're ready to do that, I want to encourage you to do that right now where you are. And you simply can pray along with me. Just bow your head and close your eyes. And you can say, Dear God, I know I have sinned. And today I'm ready to trust Jesus as my Savior. Thank you, God, for saving me. Now, friend, if you've prayed that with us today, I want to encourage you to let us know. You can go to heightschurch.org connect or simply open the camera app uh, on your phone and put it right over this QR code, and that's going to take you to that website. There you can let us know that you prayed to receive Jesus as your Savior. What we'd love to do is celebrate that with you, pray for you, come alongside of you and help you take your next steps of faith. And so I want to thank you for watching today's message. I want to encourage you, if you're able to make it out, we'd love to see you in person here at Heights on Sunday mornings at 9 or 10.30 a.m. Or you can catch us online at 9 and 10.30 a.m. live on Sunday mornings on our Heights Facebook page or Heights YouTube page. So again, until next time, God bless and have a great week.